Anya. And I'm Alan. And this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of World. People like the idea that love makes the world go round. It doesn't. You don't lock your doors at night because you love thy neighbor. You deadbolt with reinforced steel because you fear thy neighbor. Fear is order. Fear is control. Fear is safety. Fear is fiction. Fear is the product of the imagination. It's made up in the mind. The mind can dream and think of anything. You love fear. You love horror. You pay money for a pair of three-dimensional glasses and popcorn for an hour and a half of anxiety. Fear has no end. Fear is limitless. Fear thrives and feeds on itself, preparing you for calamity, preparing you to believe that the most important things are the most dangerous. If it's real in your mind, it's real in the world. The more you believe, the more you believe. Now you may be seated. This week we watched American Gods, the season two finale, episode eight, Moonshadow. What did you think, Alan? Uh, this episode ties together not only this season, but like almost every episode before it. And it makes like the entire show this cohesive story. And it feels like so intentional and uh, just like kind of glues everything together in a way that I was not expecting at all. I loved it. I think the show is better than it's ever been right now, like even better than season one. What did you think? I completely agree. This is one of my favorite episodes so far, just as like a standalone episode up there with uh, the lore episode uh, from season one and both Sweeney episodes from season one and season two. And I like that we finally got like a really weird, cohesive art house episode that actually centers like shadow and the season or not even season long arc, like the 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 main plot of the whole fucking story, <laughs> not just like. <laughs> one of the two fan favorite side characters. Um, And also my predictions from the mailbag, I think were pretty spot on. So that's really validating. (laughs) Right. But before we get to that, let's talk about this week's creators. The finale was written by Aditi Brennan Kapil and Jim Danger Gray. Gray has written for Pushing Daisies, Hannibal, and Orange is the New Black. Aditi Brennan Kapil co-wrote season two, episode four, The Greatest Story Ever Told which is the one where Shadow and Wednesday try to convince Money to join their side, Bill Quiss, Ibis, and Nancy argue about their responsibility to help the Black population in Cairo, and Technical Boy gets offed after failing to persuade the tech CEO to help him. Prior to American Gods, Brennan Capil has done a lot of playwriting for the theater. This week's episode was directed by Christopher J. Byrne, who also directed Season 2, Episode 1, House on the Rock, the one where they go to the House on the Rock. Previously, (laughs) he was a second unit director on the first season of American Gods, as well as for Hannibal and Star Trek Discovery. Let's recap what happened this week. Shadow dreams in a graveyard and wakes to find Laura next to him. The two agree that there is no hope for their marriage, and Shadow admits that he killed Mad Sweeney. Meanwhile, Mr. Wednesday sneaks out of Ibis's mortuary and drives away. In Cairo, Selim discovers that there is a national emergency happening and rushes back to Ibis's to watch the news. 
Bilquist gives Laura and Shadow one last chance to change sides, but they both refuse. New media is manipulating the news to make national enemies out of Shadow and Wednesday. At Zycom, the CEO creates the Quantum Boy, but quickly loses control of him as he helps Mr. World hack into the FBI to escalate the manhunt. New Media points her forces towards Cairo, and a SWAT team closes in on Ibises. Shadow tries to escape, but the World Tree wraps him up. He smashes through it to enter backstage, and wipes away New Media's police with the power of belief. Afterward, Laura carries Sweeney's body away, Salim and the Jinn ride away on a motorcycle, and Shadow goes onto a bus to a place called Lakeside. So before we really get into the plot and theme stuff, I want to just uh, touch briefly on the overall like structure and sound approach for the first half of the episode, because it's kind of unconventional and uh, really interesting, and I think sets the episode off on a really good foot. The episode starts off with an extended monologue from Mr. Worlds, intercut with visuals from the War of the Worlds, and then sort of like the idea of alien invasions and how that's perpetuated through our society. And it's really emphasizing this idea of fear that comes back later in the episode. And um, then after that, it cuts to an, a montage at the Zycom company um, with the CEO and the technical boy. Um, and it's really beautifully scored, but there's no dialogue at all. It's like completely dialogue free. Mm-hmm. So we go from like a monologue, which is kind of unusual, uh, I think, for TV, um, less so for theater, but it kind of makes sense now that I'm thinking about it, that a DD Brennan Kapil is on this episode and she comes from the theater where monologues are like more of a commonly used device. Oh, that's interesting. And then we go to, a you know, a thing where there's no dialogue at all. And then after that, we get like a very intense, surreal conversation between Shadow and Laura that is, I guess, like slightly more typical of something that you would get in a TV episode, like a conversation between two people. But it's still not quite your standard conversation between two characters. The visual style, like the cinematography, everything is set up so it feels like very surreal and dreamlike. And then from there, we kind of move into a more standard TV show aesthetic. I thought it was interesting that it really starts out with like (laughs) these like three kind of long extended sequences that are really different from what you typically expect to get from a TV show. And I think overall, it really helps give the whole episode a kind of intense dreamlike quality. And I'm especially glad that we're recording this episode as I'm kind of listening to the Buffering the Vampire Slayer episode on uh, the season four finale of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Restless, because I think that actually is a really interesting comparison. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I never thought about that, but yeah. Do you want to explain why that would be? Yeah, so I don't think I necessarily would have made the connection if I hadn't been listening to the podcast at the same time. Um, 
but they're they're both like really surreal, thematically rich stories. And they're season finales that come after like a really intense penultimate episode. Mm-hmm. You know, typically in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the last episode, the finale, is when they defeat this that season's big bad. Um, but in season four, they wanted to do something a little bit different, so they had them defeat the big bad in the penultimate episode, and then in the the finale, it's kind of like a long extended denouement that's basically a series of four different dream sequences. And so this isn't doesn't take it like quite that far, um, <laughs> but I do think that that the climax in the previous episode where Shadow kills Sweeney is like a really intense moment that almost feels like a season finale moment. And so for both the Buffy season four and American Gods season two, the victory in the penultimate episode is like a very like physical victory where you're actually like going to battle with someone and then the climax in the finale that follows the victory is kind of like a mental internal victory <laughs> and <laughs> that won't be the last Buffy reference in our conversation so hold on to your butts but yeah it just <laughs> it was like I, w- I was just it was very good timing and it made me really excited to talk about this episode No, I love that comparison. That's very cool. Because we do kind of get like a deep dive into Mr. World's view of the world, um, which is like this very meta thing. Uh, We also see like the dreamlike quality of what the gods are capable of is like invading reality where the television is literally speaking to shadow again. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like things are blowing Salim's mind as he's watching them on TV and like what is real what isn't and then Shadow literally enters into the dream world to solve this problem but like simultaneously enters into himself he solves something inside of himself which solves the problem in the real world which yeah. is the the kind of thing you can only do in fantasy it's like the thing that fantasy does yeah, I guess you could on some level argue that unlike in Buffy season four, the episode that came before the finale here is also like kind of an unusually structured episode um, and it is very internal uh, for Sweeney. It was really constructed around the idea of memory. Yeah. And so it felt like flashbacks, which are a little bit different than dreams. And so I think this episode is really different because it's like, it's not just flashbacks or memories. It's like everything is like very surreal and weird and dreamlike in a way that it wasn't for the previous episode. Yeah, it felt more like episode two, three, four, and five were like, those were like lost style episodes that focused on one character in the cast and then gave us like, backstory on them like we find out mr wednesday's backstory we find out shadows coming to america story yeah you know and that's what the mad sweeney episode really was he was but he was discovering his own history which had been hidden from him which kind of got us ready for this thing where shadow like finds out secrets about himself you know yeah but yeah this is totally different i think you're right and then okay so one last thing before we really dive in i just want to go over my predictions Uh, Because I am usually so bad at this. Like, I never get this right. 
and I feel like I was so spot on. Um, <laughs> so I said that the new gods were going to make a big move and that Shadow was going to have like an intense moment of agency where he really like takes control. And like, to be fair, that is like kind of a horoscope style prediction where it's like just vague enough that you can fit, <laughs> you can like fit things in it and just like project the prediction onto whatever happened. But, <laughs> but I think it's like, that is actually a pretty good description of what happened. I mean, my prediction that Bilquist and Nancy would nope out, you know, was completely wrong. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think the only thing from your prediction that was a little off was like the idea that at the end of season one, the old gods were a little bit on top of everything and had the new gods on the back foot and that that would be inverted this time. And I feel like at the end of this episode, everybody's kind of like even. Yeah, a, no, know? I totally agree. It's it's definitely back to a, a bit of a stalemate. Yeah, because like the whole thing gets called off as a hoax. And then, yeah, and, and no one is stronger than any other side. Nobody got caught or killed or anything like that. Yeah, like all of the, the people on the old god side survived, but they had to do that by like using up the tree. Shadow was able to neutralize the attack of the new gods, but he did so by getting rid of the biggest weapon in their arsenal. It's kind of interesting though, right? Cause like season two, a lot of season two has been about them getting the spear, getting this tree, and like both those weapons are taken off the board by the end. Yeah, I had a little bit of anxiety about that. And I talked about it in a previous episode of like, so it's interesting to have used things that are from the book, but like out of sequence and then manage to also get back to the status quo in the book at the end of that. And I'm like, wow, that's like, that's crazy. But they pulled it off. It kind of makes you wonder though, like, will they somehow find a way to bring the world tree and the spear back for the climax? I mean, the spear could definitely come back because it's it's out there. It's in the horde. Like, yeah. They just have to get it out of the horde. Yeah, I'm not too worried about the world tree. Seems like it grew pretty fast. <laughs> you know? There's just an infinite supply of world trees. You know, yeah, whatever. Who knows? <laughs> okay, so getting into like the main theme of the episode, I think it's pretty obvious that what they're going for here is this idea of fear. Um, so they, like, open with the War of the Worlds. So the War of the Worlds is a science fiction novel by English author H.G. Wells. And then Steven Spielberg and Tom Cruise made it into a movie classic. Of course. Of course. That's definitely what it's most well known <laughs> for. Um, but the most famous or infamous adaptation is the 1938 radio broadcast that was narrated and directed by Orson Welles. Uh, the first two-thirds of the 60-minute broadcast were presented as a news bulletin, um, which led to outrage and panic by listeners who believed that the events described in the program were real. What they show in the TV show is a depiction of at least somewhat true events that happened. And, and this uh, whole thing, the War of the Worlds thing, gets referenced by media in season one when she is kind of like telling the technical boy, like, yo, you fucked up. Uh, I'm David Bowie and I'm here to smack you around. Uh, yes, that scene. Masters are as old as I am. I was there when the Martians invaded in 1938. Also panic. 
Now there are star men waiting in the sky. They believed it was true and it was. And so this is like, we literally get to see that happen. And the way that Mr. World is incorporated into all of that and like how he is literally like in the director's chair. It's like very interesting how that ties together that that scene, something that actually happened in the real world and like what's happening in this story. It's like kind of mythologizing America in this bizarre, delightful way. I love it. Yeah, and I like how it expands the world building a little bit, right? Because we know that belief can create gods in the sense of mythology, and we know that belief can create gods in the sense of, you know, like new media and technical boy. Um, And now we also know that belief can literally create extraterrestrials. And so then I think they use this idea of fear and how belief can completely warp or shape reality to build up the tension as new media puts out the most wanted bulletins about Shadow and Wednesday and then later Salim and like really make us fear for the character's safety by showing like what a potent weapon fear is and how easy it is to just turn a population against people with a little bit of misinformation. I think the show does a really excellent job of making that fear really palpable and concrete by showing it through Salim. And like, Mm. these are even Salim's friends. If anyone should not be susceptible to this type of misinformation, it should be him. But he succumbs the (laughs) same way that the rest of the public does. And he's, oh my God, uh, Omid does such a good job. (laughs) Oh, it's great. It's so fun. Yeah. Is this true? Wednesday and Shadow have killed police officers? I strongly recommend, my young friend, you view the news through the smoky glass of skepticism. And remember, all writers have a bias. Dead police is not a, a point of view. It's murder. He's like not quite an audience surrogate. He's like a like a public mob surrogate, I guess. Yeah, he's like an in-universe audience surrogate. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah, ev- everybody watching this it has the same reaction as him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that, too, is that in uh, I think it's the episode uh, where they go to Vulcan. Salim is on the road trip with Sweeney and Laura. There's a really brief moment where he's quoting from the book and he's talking about how afraid he was in New York. New York scared me. I was scared of the black people, the way they stared at me. I was scared of the Jews, the ones dressed all in black with the hats and the beards and the side curls. I was scared of the sheer quantity of people, all shapes and sizes. And so it's even in character for Salim to be anxious in this way. Like it preys on his anxieties that he just naturally has as a character. Mm. So he's kind of like the perfect person to sit there and be upset about all this, which I love the choice to have Salim be that person. Yeah. And of course, all of this, right, is kind of like a metaphor and a critique of like Fox News and the conservative media machine, which for the past several decades has been whipping up fear of various different minority groups in order to like motivate white people politically to maintain white supremacy and conservatism. 
Did you notice that the very first image in the episode is like a Fox News thing? No, I didn't. It's like it's not literally Fox News. It's like a fake. I think it's like F-O-L-X or something like that news. Like we're unbiased. It's like black and white. It's got like a radio tower. It's like uh, the Fox News reimagined for War of the Worlds era broadcast. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's mm-hmm. I was not paying close enough attention to that graphic. <laughs> so good. Like I saw that and I was like, oh, instant shade. Cool. Like we're just going to say what we're saying. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So did you have anything else to say about that? Like, I think it's a really powerful message that works really well in the episode, but it's also like not that complicated. Like, I don't know how long we have to kind of talk about it. It did remind me, there's that moment where the TV is talking to Shadow and um, the newscasters are just literally saying what new media is saying. We're like cross-cutting and and all that stuff. And it reminded me of the Sinclair broadcasting scandal, um, if you remember that. Oh, yeah, where they like gave them like verbatim scripts to Mm -hmm. read about, you know, like immigrants at the border. You're like... And it's like literally what Ibis says, like, consider the bias of the writer, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) that there is literally one writer for hundreds of uh, broadcasting people. There's there's no independent media. There's no like check on power. It's just like corporate, you know, messaging going out to all Americans and saying like, this is your local news. And it's like, no, this is new media. This is big media. This is corporate media. Oh, man. Yeah. So actually, we don't usually get too soapboxy, but I will say, hello, listener, do some <laughs> research. Find out what the Sinclair Broadcasting Station is in your local area. Don't ever watch it. Tell your parents not to watch it. <laughs> Tell your friends not to watch it. Okay. And soapbox. And then I I think maybe you kind of mentioned this before, or at least alluded to it, that I like the way they have new media talking to Shadow through the TV, because it's clearly a reference to when old media did that in season one. And like you said, this episode mm-hmm. is doing a lot of work to tie the first and second seasons together and give the whole work a more cohesive feel. And so that's, I think, a pretty successful way to do that. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. And I love how you're like pointing out all the all this fear stuff. It's an obvious theme. I really didn't um, pick up on it when I was thinking about like my big thing for the episode. But what I did think of was that earlier in the season, Mr. World is trying to get Bilquist to like completely commit. You have no place on your battlefield. Wow. Is the most powerful weapon of war. War tears lovers asunder. But and then in this, he's like all about fear. Like fear is how you control people. So, like, what do you think about this? Is that like some kind of discontinuity, or was he just sweet talking her? Was he not genuine in what he was saying? I don't know. In a way, is like fear born out of love on some level right because if you don't have anything to lose you don't have anything to fear wow that's pretty uh intense hmm i'm just now thinking about this like maybe it's like the way that people who are invested in like the fox news ecosystem 
they love it. Like they cling to it really hard. They will fiercely defend its irrationality and stuff. They're not there because it's like a logical conclusion there. It's an emotional connection, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what Mr. World needs. He needs the people who are going to be plugged into that, not just to be there because of fear, but to be loyal to it because they care. And I guess I would have to go back and look at that scene with Mr. World and Bilquis again, because he definitely uses the word love. But I wonder, like, knowing what we know about Bilquis, I wonder, like, how much of that, like, he was saying love, but maybe he really meant sex. Because that is, like, the other way that Fox sells its image, right? Like, they they fearmonger, but also, like, all of their female hosts are basically, like, skinny, blonde, heavily Mm -hmm. made up, this one specific image of, like, female sex appeal. They're not really being picked for their journalistic skills. Like, some of them might also have some journalistic skills, but, like, there's like another requirement there right like people are watching because (laughs) they want to have a beautiful woman tell them what to do so i have a question for you about uh wednesday and his role in this episode um so when we see him leaving the house the impression that i get at first is basically that he abandoned shadow as bait at the house and bolted Mm-hmm. So by leaving Shadow at the house, he thinks that the new gods are going to center their attack there, and then he can get out. And I think that's like underscored in the conversation between Ibis and Nancy as they're playing chess. It does appear Shadow's ignorance gives them bliss. Shadow's ignorance gives them power. Wednesday's cutting this a little close, wouldn't you say? Wednesday is long gone. But Shadow Moon is under the fucking knife. You lost your edge in Cairo. Death comes too easily when you bury in families, cities, neighboring towns and shit. This is chess, not a revolution. White girl, cry down. She pay a motherfucker to solve them. Brown girl, solutions. It's gonna take a revolution. Oh, I beg to differ. He's going to take careful planning. Plucking one's king off the board and leaving United's distraction is not sufficient. Move, motherfucker. Um, But then at the end of the episode, after Shadow triumphs, he says, my boy is going to be just fine and seems like really proud of him. And I'm wondering, to what extent do you think Wednesday knew what was going to happen all along or at least like was anticipating and hoping that that's what would happen all along? Was he kind of just like pushing Shadow out of the nest a little bit or... (laughs) Did he really just bolt to save his own skin and then end up pleasantly surprised? There's strong implication, especially like early in the episode, um, Shadow has this vision of the world tree, but he sees that all over it have been carved the Arminen runes. Mm -hmm. 
And then we see those runes on the bracelet of the, you know, quote unquote, beguiling man from the beguiling man episode. And so there's like a direct connection there between Wednesday, those runes, and then the tree sucks shadow in. So I think that like Wednesday set that element up and he didn't exactly know if shadow would be able to step up in that moment. But I think that given his um, fighting against Sweeney, that he had confidence that he would do the thing that Wednesday wanted him to do. And if shadow lost, no biggie. He's not there. You know, he would have just sacrificed an important chess piece, but he wouldn't have lost. Okay, and then so my other question on this topic to you is, since Shadow uses the power of the tree to go backstage and get rid of the cops, um, and then um, his driver's license has that different name at the end when the cops pull him off the bus, so is Shadow basically a god himself now? Um, like, did he change the the driver's license himself without trying? Because he looks really surprised. Mm-hmm. Or um, did Wednesday do that for him? Yeah, in the book, Wednesday does that for him. But okay. it's, like, extremely explicit because they're having that Christmas lunch that I mentioned in the episode about the uh, Donar the Great. Mm-hmm. Um like they talk about con jobs and stuff. And at the end of that whole thing, Wednesday says, you've got a bus ticket. Here's your Christmas bonus. And he hands him a wallet that is like clearly someone's wallet, oh. <laughs> like not a new wallet. Nice. And it's like, yeah, it's full of money and credit cards and a ID. That's the ID that, you know, he has. And he's like, go to that address. That's where I want you to be. And so I was like, Shadow's confusion makes me think that Wednesday did that. Yeah, I think that's what they were trying to communicate. I mean, they were definitely trying to communicate that it wasn't something that Shadow did on purpose. Um, Mm -hmm. I think from the TV show alone, you could interpret it either as he did it unknowingly or Wednesday did it for him. So good to know that the book kind of shed some light on that. I think the show expects a lot of work from from its audience uh, that is not familiar with the source. I definitely agree, but I also think that, like, it's done in such a way that you can just go along for the ride and kind of embrace the ambiguity and mm-hmm. enjoy it without knowing exactly what's going on. What I really see here is that part of this finale is also, like, a retcon in some ways. Huh. Um, and it, yeah, it it tells us what the show really thinks is important and what it doesn't, I think, because like there are things that are left out that I feel like the show is just saying, don't worry about that stuff anymore. Because like I said, you know, when you're adapting something like what you change and what you leave the same, it like has meaning about what you're trying to say with the story, I think so. I'm always trying to like kind of decipher the direction of the adaptation. Um, But like last season, we had this entire episode in Vulcan and Wednesday like gets a a sword out of that, a God forged weapon. 
Uh, and then we haven't seen that this entire season, even though we've been very concerned with getting this spear. You are completely correct. And I feel so bad for not noticing that because that was like one of my favorite episodes of season one. And I think yeah. like it was such a good episode, the way that the the river crossing with the immigrants getting mowed down by the militiamen and like the gun violence in the factory, like it all came together in a really interesting way. And, and like having that episode end with Wednesday murdering a god and acquiring the super powerful weapon was like part of what made that episode so great. So it's like, mm -hmm. it's really disappointing actually. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, because it could have easily been in there in that list of things that they did because they did include like what happened with Easter. They said like there was a pesticide attack and it killed all these crops. They could have oh, said- that like, was the chemical attack in Kentucky. Right. Yeah. Okay, that was my other question, but I'm glad you just answered it without me having to ask. <laughs> oh, I love how they did that. Like that whole little like news montage just like draws together like the bank robbery, yeah, the stuff with yeah. Easter. It's like it's so good. And then like the killing of those cops in the town mm -hmm. and uh, you know, they get blamed for that. And so it could have easily said that like the whole economy tanked when this rich old man in the town was beheaded by a mysterious, you know, pair that came through. Yeah. Like they could have easily put that in there, you know. I feel like that could have been an element, but the fact that it isn't is like a signal to me to like forget it. Like it's not going to be part of the show. Yeah, I think you're right. In the first episode in the diner scene, there's like a shootout and we get like a close up on a bullet that says, you know, death to gods written along the bullet casing. Yeah. So that yeah, whoever it hits, it will kill the god. So it was like, is that a Vulcan thing? But it's clearly not. They just don't care about it. Which is fine, but it, but like, you know, that's part of what this episode is doing. We're going to have yet another showrunner next season. Maybe this is a signal about what direction they're going to be moving in and what matters and what doesn't. A similar retcon to that was the entire um, puppy thing. Um, the scene that we get here is almost straight out of the book. Oh my god, oh my god, Shadow. Oh my god, look at that puppy. Look at that puppy. Oh my god, it's such a fuck about I've ever seen in my life. We have to get a puppy. Can we please get a puppy? Can we get a puppy? Look at that puppy. I want to smash him something serious. Oh my god, can we have that puppy? No, we can't. Give me that puppy. I thought you were allergic. So what? I'll take a fucking pill. I want that puppy. Go steal me that puppy. Alright, tell you what. I will be your puppy. Uh, which is not what we got in season one. I wanted to get that magic back so bad, but one day I just accepted the fact that I couldn't because life is just not that interesting. Don't look at me like that. Like what? It's like you're a lost puppy. That was fun, puppy. I'm just getting started. So, okay. Like, that is technically a retcon, but I feel like it's also something that's fairly easy to fix with some hand-waving, right? Like... I think it can be both of these at the yeah. same time. Like, yeah, they can live together, but it's also, like, a signal of, like, this is the book version and this is the real version. You know what I mean? Okay, so I have one thought about this, which is that 
Like, I agree that I think leaving Vulcan and, like, any reference to Vulcan and the sword out of this is, like, a somewhat intentional retconning of what is and isn't important. Mm -hmm. I think that they put the puppy scene in this episode not even really thinking about what was in season one. I think they did it because they're having the scene where Laura and Shadow are essentially breaking up and agreeing to just go their separate ways and like acknowledge that Laura had hoped to mend their relationship since she got resurrected and like that's not gonna happen. To show the like death of that relationship, they needed to pair it with a kind of like birth of the relationship scene. Oh no, I and I think it like reflects like the reality of what happens in your mind. You're kind of like you will think of those happy things like in that moment and mm-hmm. it will like be that sting. The happy memories are what hurt the most looking back. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to push back a little bit. I kind of think that they're not actually making commentary on season 1 with this. I think they're literally just trying to build that contrast in the scene Mm -hmm. rather than signal something to us about how they're viewing what they did previously in season one. It it also made me think of it because they're like literally lying next to each other in both of those scenes. Oh yeah, they're like lying on the bed and then Mm. lying on the gravestones, which is like such a beautiful visual image. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially since like she's dead. Yeah, it's one of those things, too, where you're like, oh, man, that is something that could have been in the book, but isn't. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so such a smart uh, idea. But, like, keeping with, like, uh, things that were kind of changed from the book and, like, what's important and what's not here. Uh, in the book, Anubis, Ibis, and Shadow buy some Irish whiskey and just sit around at a table that they set for four people, you know, with one empty chair and just kind of drink into the night telling Mad Sweeney stories and getting drunk. And eventually Mad Sweeney starts like interrupting their stories and like correcting them and getting drunk along with them at the fourth seat at the table. And so Salim going to buy the liquor, I felt like was a reference to that. He's like, Uh, Sorry, I've never purchased liquor before. It's for a friend. He's a leprechaun. He died. Okay. <laughs> oh my god, he's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> In his hyper honest way. It that was a fun little Easter egg. In the first season, Shadow wakes up in the back of Betty with Wednesday driving after the night where him and Sweeney got into the bar fight. Mm-hmm. And he does talk about, like, did I learn to do that coin trick or not? So Shadow might have the ability to pull from the horde, which means that he might have the ability to pull the spear at need. Oh, interesting. And so in the book, he learns from, like, Speeny's dead spirit or whatever during the wake. Mm Mm-hmm. There is, like, a up in the air, like, what's going to happen to Mad Sweeney? Yeah, so now might be a good time to talk about that. at the end of the episode we see Laura walking away with his body which I'm sure all the madwife shippers 
we're very excited to see. Um, but I'm <laughs> yeah. curious what you think might happen with that. Well, when we were live tweeting, Janita Davis said, uh, oh, well, there goes Laura with Matt Sweeney's body, and she's going to walk all the way to New Orleans. Oh. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, that's amazing. I never would have thought of that. Oh, to try and get him resurrected there? Because uh, it's like all she knows, right? Yeah. Well, and she she knows that the death Loa actually likes Sweeney, so they might be more willing to resurrect him than they are to resurrect her. Yeah, exactly. Um, you might remember that moment where Laura and Bilquis are together in front of the tree. Laura is like looking at the puddle of blood, mm-hmm. and I was like, man, she didn't like just get some of the blood. And on Twitter, um, Sabine Corday said to that that she did uh, get the blood on her shoe she did it she like on her shoe yeah she specifically like put her shoe in it and I didn't read it that way I saw it as like an accident or like her kind of like fiddling with the puddle like as Bilquis was making her uncomfortable but she was saying no that's definitely on purpose so that she can use the potion on Sweeney and I was like holy crap like that's very cool I'm not sure how much like dirty shoe contaminated blood would work for a potion, but she was definitely like, I think testing it to see how liquid it was. So maybe they'll imply that she got a couple drops off screen. Oh, wow. So she is thinking about that or there's a potential that they could use that potion because that whole thing just kind of never paid off. Mm -hmm. Um, Can I just say that I also, I kind of love the way that Laura says, you know, like... Listen, no matter what, I will always have your back. And I think she really means that, and I don't think the breakup changes that at all. There's something that I find just, like, really beautiful about that, where it's like, okay, the, like, romantic part of our relationship is over, we're not in love anymore, but I do still love you on some level, and, like, if anyone tries to fuck with you, I'm gonna fuck with them back. (laughs) And, you know, I was anxious about, we talked about that so much, right, about did season one count, did her love for him count, and I think this is clearly, like, the evidence of that, like, exactly what you're talking about, because if she was only using him for the blood or if she was only using him for like a purpose or something like that, she wouldn't say this. She wouldn't say, I've got your back no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you say to someone you love. Yeah. We also had someone write into us about this whole Laura Sweeney thing. Um, Terry wrote into us and uh, he said, I think that Sweeney is dead, but eventually Laura will save Shadow one last time only to realize that she and Shadow don't have a future at all. She will be nearly played out anyway. She will pull the coin out of her own chest and put it in Sweeney's chest or drop it on his grave and then she'll die. He will be restored by the offering and he will escort Laura's spirit to the underworld a la Essie uh, now that she finally believes. But I don't think that he will continue in the story of American Gods. Ooh, yeah. I love that. That would be amazing. Yeah. So I think all of this sets that possible ending up really nicely. Like, that would be extremely cool. Uh, and I loved that idea from Terry. So thank you for writing in. Yeah, and I just uh, I just mentioned uh, Sabine. She also had, like, a thought about that uh, whole thing. Um, she said, I feel like the strength Laura receives from the coin and how it gives her a sense of power 
that she would be loath to give up even if she could resurrect Sweeney. I think she is going to keep having way more emotions about him than is comfortable, and so she needs new options. Um, so, like, she can't give up the coin right now yeah. because she would be dead. So, basically, like, season three, Laura's story will probably kick off with trying to do something for Sweeney to bring him back, but probably won't go anywhere. I love all this stuff. Like, people have some great speculation and, like, Laura and Sweeney are so fun. Yeah. In the show. It's great. Also tying together season two and season one, we get Chernabog uh, in the first couple of episodes, right? And remember in season one, like he's constantly smoking. He's like so dirty and gross and disgusting. And when they come out of the carousel, Shadow uh, asks Chernabog, like... Seriously, are you not worried about cancer? I am cancer. But then in the next episode, we learn that like Shadow's mother died from cancer. So like that question means a little bit more to Shadow than Chernobyl probably realizes. Mm. Oh, yeah, I wasn't thinking about that at the time. But you're right. It does kind of recontextualize that. And then, of course, from season one, Chernabog is going to hit Shadow in the head with a hammer at the end of all of this. So for Shadow himself, Chernabog is kind of like a death that like hangs over everything. So Chernabog, in a sense, will have killed the mother and the son. He is death in this, I don't know, like in a in a meta macro sense. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to scully you on this one. That one gets my stamp <laughs> of approval. Also with Chernabog. In that same episode, like right after that, you get the shootout in the diner. Zariah goes down and Chernabog is very angry about it. And he lets loose a curse on whoever the shooter was. Whoever did this, I curse. I curse you! I curse you with the Chernobyl's curse. Fuck you. I'm fucking mother. I'm fuck that fucking horse that you rode in on. You will not even die in a battle. No warrior will taste your blood. No one alive will take your life. <laughs> she will find you and you will die with a sweet kiss on your lips and eternal darkness in your soul. No one alive will take your life. She will find you. Who can fulfill that curse in this story? Oh. In that episode, Mr. World deploys Mr. Town to open fire. So presumably Mr. Town is the shooter, I guess. I guess, yeah. So he cursed Mr. Town. In the next episode, Laura kicks down a steel metal door into Mr. Town's face. And then the train crashes. And I guess Town is dead? I mean... Like, is is that the fulfillment of this curse? Arguably, it is a battle. Even if she was just Mm -hmm. trying to get into the train car and not actually kill him. But she is not alive. I don't know if he died with a sweet kiss on his lips. (laughs) Yeah. And like this curse is like 
straight out of the book, which I talked about in that in our recap of that episode. Uh, and I was surprised to see it because it comes late in the book. Mm. Uh, and Mr. Town in the book is a, an important character. He's the only villainous character that we get interior POV of. Is the curse preceded by Zariah Vertrinaya's death in the book? Or is it kind of come from something else? She never dies, but something very similar to this happens. Okay. But yeah, so like, I'm confused. Uh, I thought that Town would be more important in the show. This would be like, if you said, we're going to remake The Matrix, uh, but Mr. Smith is going to die in the first five minutes. And you'd be like, who's the bad guy then? (laughs) Because... Like, Mr. Town is the bad guy of the book. I also kind of feel like they made a big deal out of casting Mr. Town. Yeah. I forget who the actor was, but they, like, he, like, gave interviews, which struck me as a little bit weird at the time based on, like, how minor of a role he ultimately ended up being. Dean Winters, by the way, is the actor who plays Mr. Town. Yeah, so maybe he will come back. So, yeah, what's your vote? Is this curse fulfilled or not fulfilled? I would say, based on everything we've just talked about, I think Mr. Town is going to come back and fulfill more of the role that he played in the book, although I don't know what that role is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think what's swaying my decision mostly is kind of that meta stuff about the casting and the interviews. I think that combined with what you've said about the book makes me think that he'll come back. Like, it's not that I need Mr. Town to be in this story or anything. Like, they can change whatever they want, and I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. You gave this whole signal, and now, like, he was here for, like, five minutes. Yeah. I don't even... It's weird. And then getting ready for this podcast... I went through the book and tried to figure out, like, what is the pace at which we are moving through this story? You know, two seasons now. Um, what does Game of Thrones do? One book per season? Those books are, like, what, like 800,000 pages each or something? Yeah, something um, like that. So season one did about 100 pages of American Gods, five chapters of the book. And season two did about 90 pages or four chapters uh, of the book. But that's not counting all the stuff from the end that it also folded in. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. The meeting with Easter happens after Shadow goes to Lakeside. Also, the meeting with Money happens after he goes to Lakeside. Um, So we've seen some stuff already. Yeah, so I don't know. We're moving through at about 100 pages per season. So you could estimate about four seasons or so. I think four seasons make sense. I feel like at the beginning of the season, we were saying a lot of like, this season is going to be closer to the book. We're going to get back on track. And I feel like it changed just as many things, you know, with the whole poltergeist episode, pulling stuff from earlier or from later in the book into earlier in the story. So just like the characters in this episode, we got some fake news (laughs) and like had the wrong reaction to it, but maybe that's what they wanted. Maybe they wanted to trick us. So, so going back to that scene between shadow and Laura, Um, This was another place where I was thinking a lot about Buffy um, because there's like this theme in Buffy that pops up several times about like what it means to kill a human. 
And so despite the fact that, you know, the Slayers are fighting these supernatural forces of evil and dusting a lot of vampires and, you know, killing demons on a regular basis, they also present the idea that killing a human is a completely different thing and it's a really big deal. And so in this season two, episode Ted, Buffy doesn't actually kill a person, but she thinks she has. She kills her mom's robot boyfriend. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and like goes through a whole existential thing where she like really uh, wants to turn herself into the police and feels really horrible about it. And then in season three, Faith, um, another slayer that was called after Buffy, um, ends up killing uh, Deputy Mayor Allen in an accident. And there's like this whole multi-episode thing about, you know, whether Faith does or doesn't feel guilty or how much it has or hasn't affected her. You know, Ricky Whittle as Shadow trying to grapple with the fact that he just killed somebody for the first time. And, you know, maybe it wasn't somebody who he thought of as a close friend or anything, but it was definitely someone who he had gotten to know as a person. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about uh, Shadow's reaction to killing Sweeney. Yeah, there's definitely... I think it's really complicated, right? And this was, like, what I wanted at the end of episode seven that I talked about, like I wanted to see that moment between him and Laura where he has to confess this. And I, I love the the way that um, Ricky Whittle plays it. Yeah. And he does it in kind of a passive way Mm -hmm. to like avoid a little bit of responsibility. Right. Cause he doesn't say I killed Sweeney. He says. Sweeney died last night. How? Came up Wednesday, and uh, I got in the way. Okay. I didn't mean to. He, he just. So it was like Sweeney's fault. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't. There was no choice. Like. Like, on one level, I think he's watching her reaction to that news of, like, how much does she care that he's dead, given what Sweeney said about what happened in New Orleans. Yeah. And then there's also, like, some anger, a little bit of bitterness there. That's what I read in his performance. So, and and I think he also cares. Like, he doesn't want to hurt her, but he kind of does want to hurt her. Like, the whole thing is, like, complicated, and I really loved how they did it. I also think that it's so interesting that Shadow killed Sweeney to protect Wednesday and like feels really upset about it and maybe even so upset about it that he's now just going to let Laura go try to kill Wednesday and not do anything about it. Like, why is he treating Laura different than Sweeney? He, I think he regrets killing Sweeney. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think he was kind of running on instinct Yeah. And because, you know, he was hired to be Wednesday's bodyguard. And so he did it. But I think looking back, he regrets it. And so letting Laura, who's pissed that he did kill Sweeney, go murder Wednesday as revenge for like everything that he's done to their lives. (laughs) I think that's kind of like his way of trying to make up for it. Although also like maybe the difference is that because Sweeney killed Laura on Wednesday's orders, 
her mission to kill Wednesday is different than Sweeney's mission to kill Wednesday, right? Like, you're kind of allowed to try and kill somebody who is also trying to kill you or maybe has killed you. Whereas, like, Sweeney and Wednesday weren't locked in that kind of conflict the way that Laura and Wednesday are. You know, talking about this, it just makes me realize that I think what the episode is saying there at the end is that for Shadow, he has checked out. Like in the book, he goes to Lakeside because Wednesday sends him there. Mm -hmm. But I think Shadow is like, I'm done with this. Like, this is crazy. And I'm done. He thinks he's running away. And then in that moment where he thinks, oh, now I'm going to go to jail, he actually is like, oh shit, he still has his hook in me. Oh. He knows where I'm going. I bought a ticket to this place randomly and he has set it all up for me. Oh shit, you know. Ooh, I love that. It really contextualizes that look on Ricky Whittle's face where it's like, it's not just that Shadow's surprised that he's not going to jail, but it's like, oh shit, like, yeah, Wednesday is still manipulating everything. But I do think, to answer your question, that Shadow is way more on the Buffy end of the spectrum than on the Faith end of the spectrum. Like, Faith is kind of like, meh, guy got in the way, shit happens. Well, is she really, though? Like, that's the face that she puts on. Like, I don't think Shadow has that face. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely not. (laughs) I think that whole thing like puts faith in a space where she's like i now i'm evil i'm totally evil uh and i'm just gonna own it and where shadow's like i'm gonna run away Um, shadow is more running from like the truth that he discovers in the tree and this idea that being around wednesday is changing him he gets you know to speak of another prophecy He gets the card from the house on the rock and the thing that it says, or one of the things that it says on there is like father, like son. When he goes into the world tree, there's a strong implication that Wednesday is his father. Yeah. Okay. I saw that too. And I wasn't sure what to think that he is like Thor resurrected in some way or like a different type of father. Odin has a lot of kids. He's the all father. Oh, like there's oh, that's, more. That's literally what that means. <laughs> well, I mean, in the in the mythology, like he has more children than just. I mean, Thor's like the celebrity. Right. You know, okay. there's a lot of Hemsworths out there. Is what I'm saying. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> Shadow is like, oh my god, a part of my identity is this person who killed my wife and I killed Sweeney. What am I? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and then he just wipes all those police. Does he wipe them from existence? Did he kill all those people? Did he reset them back at their jobs? Like, you know, what is he now? Unclear. He's struggling. Since you brought that up, I also kind of want to add it's worth pointing this out, and I don't think it was an accident that when Salim and Shadow are kind of like running around the house being scared. Um, as, like, the police are on their way and, you know, they're being swatted or whatever. Shadow says... Let me get out of here. I'm leaving right now because I am not going back to prison. Not for them. You're not like us. Okay, they're going to be just fine. You and me, we could die today. That's very deliberate, right? That, like, as a black man who's having the police sent after him and has had all of this fear whipped up about him, like, if he stays... He is not going to jail. There is literally no chance that he will survive this interaction. 
because mm-hmm, of the way mm-hmm. that it's being set up by the fear machine and by society. Like, he has to leave, not just to avoid jail, but literally to avoid death, because there's no other way it can end. I totally agree. Yeah, I think there's a kind of contrast to be made between the kind of, like, fake fear that's being drummed up by the news and then this, like, very real fear that Shadow has in response to that. That's totally a thing. That whole thing where he, where Shadow goes into the tree and, and finds out, like, this stuff inside of him about uh, his mother and Wednesday possibly being his father you know, like all of this vision and stuff, I see that directly connected to the moment that he has with Bilquis, where she kind of like anoints him with a with some blood or something, it looks like. Uh, and she says, find out who you are. Um, and that it's like a dreamy, weird uh, moment. Yeah, so this is my, my Buffy hat trick moment. I thought it was interesting that after Bilquis says that their fortunes are linked and kisses him, it goes into this like surreal, I'm gonna call it a vision of Bilquis anointing him. And I think it's a vision because there's no blood on his head afterwards. So I think all of this is happening kind of like internally in his mind. And then he like suddenly snaps back to reality and she's gone. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me, given where my head was as we were writing this, of um, Angel the series where um, Doyle passes the visions to Cordelia via a kiss. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. And so I'm not sure, like, what other examples there are in pop culture of, like, visions being passed via kisses, but I I thought that was interesting. And also, (laughs) I love that in her interaction... Uh, with Laura, Bilquis says, my kisses have been known to improve a day. And so I was wondering <laughs> if you thought that Shadow's day was improved or not by his encounter with Bilquis. Uh, it doesn't seem like it. <laughs> it's just like more weird shit. I think directly after that, he goes to run out of the house. He's like, enough. I'm done. Like, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it definitely improved my day. Um, <laughs> but I... Yeah, but I'm very intrigued by this idea that Bilquis and Shadow's fortunes are linked, and I'm excited to see where that goes, even though I think at this point it's like pretty ambiguous and difficult to parse into anything meaningful or clear. Yeah, I don't, I don't totally know what she means either, or if she's like indicating to him, that like, I'm not really choosing a side, I'm choosing you. Ooh, that's interesting. I guess I just feel like this is the first time in the TV show where I'm really intrigued and excited to see how Bill Quist fits in with all of this. I knew from reading the book that she, in the book, she's basically just a one-off character. You get like a coming to America kind of a style aside of her, and then she doesn't get involved. So, you know, up until this point, She's been kind of, like, wandering around and interacting with people, and, like, you don't really know what side she's on, Um, but it was, like, unclear exactly what was happening with her character, and I feel like this moment with Shadow is the moment where I'm, like, bought in, like, yes, okay, Bilquis, like, I want you to be a part of the story. Yeah, it's very cool. This moment mirrors a moment in the book, very late in the book, that has to do with the world tree, 
where a god character kind of like touches his head then he enters the tree and has almost this exact same vision that he has here about his mother about wednesday and about like kind of making all these connections about his heritage and identity mm-hmm. and maybe why he is so interesting to wednesday and to the gods if he does have a godfather and a mortal mother then that he's like a mixed blood kind of demigod mm-hmm. and so he would have more power than a regular human but also he has the human power that faith manifests phenomenon. Yeah. So his beliefs can literally become reality if he will just have faith in himself. But the way to get there is like extremely similar to this moment. It's with a different God, but, but they're, you know, touching his head and all that stuff. I was like, oh, wow. They're like, they're doing this thing and they're putting Bilquis um, in that position. I like that it's kind of recentering the narrative around Shadow and Shadow's identity, because I feel like that's part of what was missing from a lot of season one, and that was leaving a lot of viewers feeling kind of unanchored. It's so satisfying, right? At the end of this episode, you're like, wow, yeah, we're back with Shadow. When I say that this is the first time I'm really bought into Bilquis's character arc, that is like completely a reflection just on like how she's being used in the narrative. Yatide Badaki's acting has been amazing this whole time. It's just, I haven't really been sure how all of that fits in with the broader scale of things. I did like her moment with Laura where she has like the apple and everything. This is a clear like Adam and Eve reference. Yeah, but- so I wanted to get your take on that, right? Because in the Bible... Right, the apple is a symbol of knowledge, and it also is a symbol of like temptation towards evil, right? And so I, I'm, it was not clear to me in that scene, like exactly how the apple is being used symbolically, although it's, it's clearly being used to great effect visually. <laughs> right. <laughs> we talked in our other podcast uh, about Gnosticism this idea of like knowledge and that the serpent in the garden of Eden in the Gnostic version of Christianity is actually Jesus trying to give us knowledge about the universe so that we are not enslaved to an evil God who wants to keep us in ignorance. And that's what I kind of saw here and that the world tree, the tree of life, the tree of knowledge is kind of like a tree, like it gives Shadow knowledge about himself. Hmm. And that's what Bilquis is offering. I see. Is knowledge. (laughs) Because Shadow's a man, he got anointed. But if Laura had accepted the apple and bitten into it, she would have received some sort of like insight into the big picture of what's happening. Yeah, who knows? I definitely didn't get the impression that Bilquis was trying to consume either Laura or Shadow. And like, Mm -hmm. you're with me on that, right? It felt like that was what she was originally sent there to do. Like she was like, I want to talk to Shadow. I want to talk to Shadow. Mm -hmm. And then she like gets naked and I was like, dude, get out of there. Like it's a trap. (laughs) But that doesn't seem to be what she wanted. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know if she's offering an alliance or if she's like a secret, secret agent or like what? It's so interesting, though. Mm -hmm. I like your idea that she's just aligning herself with Shadow and actually, like, doesn't give a shit about either the old gods or the new gods. 
other than that how they cool. relate to her own survival. I hope so. I hope that's what they do with it. Um, it would be cool to have Laura there as his muscle and like Bilquist there as like the secret spy that can give him like information about what the new gods are up to. It would be it would be interesting. We also get the birth of a new god in this episode. The technical boy is dead. Long live the quantum boy. (laughs) So they call him the quantum boy and all the ad material. But I don't think they ever say that in the episode, do they? No, I only knew about it because you had mentioned it uh, in our DMs. Uh, The quantum boy is pretty interesting. I was glad to see Bruce Langley keep a role on the show because he's um, he's so great. And I think this kind of shows off his range, too, um, because the quantum boy is so different from the technical boy. Yeah. I mean, I think it probably the technical boy and media, they take on a little bit of the personality of the era in which they were born. The Julian Anderson's version of media, right, like really came of age in like early television. And then new media is much more like social media oriented and kind of just like fun and flirty and interested in connections in a different way and like engagement in a different way. And then Technical Boy, the version that we've seen, it's really that kind of like early internet era, self-important 4chan asshole, whatever, uh, (laughs) who's like way too cool for everybody else. And now this new version of him is like much more kind of like navel gazy Twitter CEO brand of asshole. Yeah, it was like the whole thing that you get out of Silicon Valley of like, mm-hmm. we're doing all this to save the world. Let me send my submarine to Thailand. I'll save everybody. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I thought it was cool that when he first appears, he says, hello, friend, um, which he said in the previous episode, so it kind of tied it together. But to me, it was also a reference to the when you learn to code, one of the first things you usually do is um, write out a program that says, hello, world. Yeah. Ooh, I hadn't made that connection. I like it. Because he does seem to have like this software component to him. And I guess since they call him Quantum Boy, this is a reference to quantum computing, which is this marriage of hardware and software. Do you know anything about quantum computing? That's interesting that you went directly to quantum computing, because when you mentioned the name Quantum Boy, I actually, I guess I just hang out with too many physicists. I went (laughs) to quantum... (laughs) Well, you're a scientist, to be clear. (laughs) Yeah, so I went to, like, quantum mechanics and quantum states, which is the principles that are behind quantum computing, but a little bit more general. The idea of quantum mechanics, I'm going to totally butcher this. Physicists, please write in to correct me. Um, But it's basically the idea that, okay, so like classical physics, right, is observable phenomena um, at like the macroscopic level that we interact with every day. And then quantum mechanics is going down to like the very, very small microscopic level um, where everything is happening in discrete units. So like single atoms. The idea that I get is that, you know, quantum states are where everything is very discrete. Like you don't have 1.2534 whatever of something you have like one or two or three things are either kind of on or off there or not there 
Um, so mm. I was thinking about that in terms of like Shadow and Laura's relationship and like seeing a relationship as a quantum state where like either <laughs> the relationship is there or it's not there. There's no mm-hmm. none of this kind of like in between messy space. Okay, but going back to quantum computing, so I don't understand quantum computing super well. People are probably pretty familiar with the idea of like bits of information, right? In binary, everything is either zero or one, which is a quantum state. But quantum computing is a little bit different than traditional computing because there's also a third quantum state that's like a superposition of one and zero, but not really because when you measure it, it always either goes back to a one or a zero. Well, that's like Schrodinger's cat. Yeah. It is both dead and alive at the same time until you look. And then once you measure to see if the cat is alive or dead, then it is one of those states. But in its quantum state, while it's in the box, it is both. It is alive and dead. But I think you can also like... There's various ways of trying to write out probability functions so that it's not necessarily like equally dead and alive at the same time. It might could be like more dead than alive or vice versa. Right. Because like from what I understand of quantum computing, why it's so powerful is because the like the superposition is like it like you said, it's a zero or a one. But when it comes out, it's either This is kind of like gene expression, actually. It's like a zero, zero, a zero, one, a one, one, or a one, zero. You get, there's four possibilities for the binary pair. What makes it faster is because of this idea of called quantum entanglement. Mm -hmm. What that means is that the zero, zero and the one, one are connected. So just like Schrodinger's cat, if you look in the box and the cat is alive, that means you automatically know that in another universe, the cat is dead because you have the live one. I see. Okay. It only has to do half of the computations that another computer would have to do to find the same answer. I see. Because Because the probability distributions are linked. Exactly. So it solves one problem and gets two answers. Interesting. Once you put that on an exponential level... It is much faster, much more powerful than a regular computer. From what I understand, I don't understand quantum computing, but like, (laughs) but that's in trying to read about it and learn about it, like, this is what it seems like uh, is the potential promise of quantum computing. Whether it can live up to that or not, it's still being like researched and stuff. Okay. The whole Schrodinger's cat is like, alive in one world and it's dead in another and he kind of says like i can be two places at once Ooh, i see who are you talking to unlike you i actually can be in two places at once i exist in a quantum state where i can exist in multiple places at the same time. Ooh, powerful. Yeah. So this is definitely an upgrade, I think, for the technical boy. But his personality is so odd now. Like, he's... How do you read him? Like, he seems very cold to me. Yeah, I think he is more cold. He's less of a, like, personal asshole and more, like, detached. I think it's interesting that in the span of, like maybe a month or something of in-show time, 
both media and technical boy have been upgraded when it seems like they had been persisting for decades prior to without needing to be upgraded. And I kind of like the way that actually functions in the narrative where it's like Wednesday is forcing the new gods to level up. Um, They've kind of just gotten complacent. No, I really like that. Necessity, the mother of invention. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. And so it makes it, (laughs) they've kind of made lemonade out of Gillian Anderson leaving. It also seems like World has more control over both of them now. Mm -hmm. They were a little bit more independent before. Like he's not arguing with Quantum Boy. Quantum Boy is doing exactly what he is supposed to do in the plan. I also love at some point, I think it was Quantum Boy, he said something about uh, crafting a narrative out of chaos, which just made me laugh out loud. (laughs) It's like (laughs) a little bit meta if you want to read it that way. (laughs) They're like, okay, guys, we know. We know it's kind of been a mess, but like watch us bring this all together and one amazing episode that ties seasons one and two together in a satisfying way to craft a narrative out of chaos. <laughs> I really like that. Did you notice that when you were watching, just out of curiosity? Oh, definitely not. No, oh. that's great. Yes, yeah, score one for Anya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think that like what I said um and like the idea of quantum computing, the reason that it's getting so much research is because that computing power will like allow, um, of course, those will be used by the military, allow like defense companies to um, crack encryption codes that would take a regular computer like the entire lifetime of the universe to crack. Quantum computers will be able to do this like nothing, which is what happens in this episode. They hack into like the FBI, Mm -hmm. the, you know, the media, and just start to control all of the information simultaneously. So, like, it's not just the technical boy being reborn at the Zycom headquarters allows them to hack in. It's specifically that he's reborn as Quantum Boy that allows the hack to occur. I think so. But, like, I think the episode actually does, like, a bad job of transmitting that information because like you said we didn't know he was quantum boy we don't know anything about quantum computing like we did all this extra work to like put this together and it's cool but like we had to do all this work so i also want to just point this out briefly without getting too deeply into it that in the quantum boy rebirth scene i really liked the use of the metronome and how it's kind of like a link between kind of like diegetic sounds, which are sounds uh, that the audience can hear, but are also like actually happening in the scene to the characters. Um, And then the like more mood music that only the audience can hear. And so, yeah, the the metronome is kind of like linking those two soundscapes in a cool way. And I haven't really fully thought through this argument yet, but I think there's something there. You know, like we've been talking about how the old gods and the new gods are set up as opposition to each other. And in um, the episode where we meet the tech CEO, he's kind of juxtaposed with his father as, you know, like the classical music versus the techno music, head versus heart, thinking versus feeling. 
And I feel like the metronome and the central role that it plays in both like the classical music and the techno music, again, is kind of like challenging that dichotomy, right? It's super important to both of them and it kind of constrains both of them in a similar way. Oh, I like that. Well, they, they also sit around discussing like Jacob from the Bible, which is like a very old story for this guy to be thinking about. Yeah, and he's, you know, he talks about wrestling a god, which is mm-hmm. a very like old school idea that I think, you know, his dad <laughs> would totally be on board with or interested in, right? <laughs> right. There's that scene where his dad is playing the music and says like, This is grief. And yet, the rising notes of joy shattering his own rules. Can you hear it? This is how men like me pray. This scene is is directly speaking to that, right? He's not praying to gods. He's trying to wrestle with them. Yeah, he's trying to measure himself. That's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. And then I have one more really important question for you, which is, what the fuck do snails mean? (laughs) Isn't that weird? They show up on the grave while he's sleeping, I guess. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then they show them again later. So I feel there's like definitely something intentional there. Yeah, the snails show up twice. Oh, Both times they're on the gravestones. First, they're shown like coming out. And then they're shown like kind of retreating. Um, Mm. I know that like if you're going to use snails as like a magical ingredient for like occult practices, I mean, it depends on the tradition. Like their most common use is like aphrodisiac type of thing because that's what you use almost everything for and snails like to get down. (laughs) Is it because they're really spongy? Aren't they also like hermaphroditic? So they're down for... Uh, They are hermaphroditic. They literally shoot projectile gametes at each other. I love it. Um, No, but I feel like because their flesh is like so moldable and it like changes size and shape, I can see how people would be like, oh, this like expanding mutable flesh will give me the power to expand and permute my flesh. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The shells, though, to like make it a more safe thing, um, usually symbolize like inward travel, um, knowledge, safety, home, you know, because that's the literally. Oh, yeah. They like have their homes on their backs. That makes sense. It is. It's especially appropriate now that you mention it for this episode, like the inward travel and knowledge aspect of it, like that kind of spiral inwards that the shell makes. So that happens with Shadow in this. It happens to a degree with the Quantum Boy, right? Um, yeah. They have significance, I guess. I don't know. Was that good enough? I don't know. <laughs> I think that was good enough. Yeah, we're using this episode kind of to wrap up the entire season since it had just so many callbacks um, to everything from season one and all through this season. And I did fail to mention in our discussion about Iktomi and Gnoski that uh, those two characters are played by um white european actors and like that's kind of a problem i think for the show uh especially when they did so good with sam black crow and i did want to point that out to our listeners that you should hire native actors for you know native roles yeah that's pretty disappointing especially on a show that seems to have uh, a really good track record in general with these things 
Uh, we did get some other feedback besides the emails and tweets that we mentioned earlier. And uh, just wanted to say thank you to everybody who reached out to us, the, all the folks who live tweeted with us for the finale. Um, so Queen Erica, who's at BookNerdGirl101, says that she likes how vulnerable Shadow is at the end and how the show has an LGBTQ couple who aren't punished for who they are. And I totally agree with that. And we talked a bit about Salim and some of the roles that he plays in the episode already, but we really didn't mention um, Salim and the Jin at the end driving off in their uh, mystical motorcycle and side <laughs> car and just being adorable as fuck. So thanks for reminding us to mention that, Erica. We also heard from Andre. Um, I, I hope I'm saying your name right, Andre. At Andre Whittlefam on Twitter. Uh, he said, I believe season three will be brought even closer to the original book blueprint. Even though Lakeside seems merely an intermezzo for Shadow to lay low, it's an important turning point for him to finally take control. And that part of the book features some crucial milestones. And like every other book fan, I am super excited to get to Lakeside because it is probably the best stuff in the book. I have no idea how the show is going to do Lakeside because the book takes place in the winter. It is currently summer in the show. This is literally the opposite. And winterness of Lakeside is fundamental to that story. So I'm so curious about what's going to happen. Okay. Um, well, now it's time to wrap up with lowlights and highlights. Alan, what was your least favorite part? Well, even though we talked a lot about this and I had a lot of good things to say, uh, I'm confused about Bilquist. Like, I wish that they were using her in a way that was less fuzzy. Like, I I posited that maybe she's on Shadow's side, but I don't know that for sure. I don't know if she represents knowledge or love or if the new gods need her or don't need her. She exists in a quantum state for me that I don't understand. So... <laughs> I don't know. What about you? Well, I think that's really funny because I was definitely contemplating saying that Yutide Badaki's performance in the scene with Laura might have been my favorite part. The way she uses that apple, like, damn girl, I need a cold shower. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can see your point looking at like the character overall. You know, I'm so bad at finding things to complain about in these really good episodes that I love. But thankfully... Our conversation supplied me uh, with an answer, so I think I'm going to go with the fact that Vulcan and the sword were not brought up in an episode um, that had a lot of important callbacks uh, to things that happened in season one. Um, so what was your favorite part? Uh, I mean, every time I watch this episode, I get chills when Shadow becomes a small child again and is playing with that scene of the house and the SWAT team closing in and then he just clears the board and it's like that is so amazing nothing like that really happens in the book but the book like implies that it's possible and to see it happen is like incredible like I just loved it yeah I think you're totally right and I think it's actually kind of interesting because it's almost like a deus ex machina moment but like literally but it also kind of pays off because of the world building and because of the way that it's been built up to. It's such a cooler expression of like the power of Shadow's faith than like Odin letting loose like a lightning spell. 
mm-hmm. you know, the way that it happened in the first season. Like, this was just like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Yeah. And I guess just to, like, spell out the contrast that I'm making, like, a lot of times I think people complain about you put your characters in an impossible situation and then you just use, like, a magic spell to, like, solve the problem. But it doesn't feel earned. And I think in this case, even though he just kind of, like, sweeps everything out of the way and solves it with magic, it feels completely earned. Yeah. Actually, what you're pointing out there, and I'll link to this in the show notes, is um, what Brandon Sanderson calls the rules for magic in dramatic writing. Oh. If you try to solve things with a random, like, the magic was in you all along, click your heels three times, it feels, like, bad. But Mm -hmm. then... If you have built the rules up and then the character steps into that and like does what's necessary, it feels really, really good. Uh, that's yeah, that's a superb catch. Uh, what about you? Is that your favorite thing or what was your uh, favorite thing? Well, I have several favorite things. No, um, <laughs> I just I really liked the structure that I went over at the beginning and the surreal feel of everything. After we watched the episode, uh, my husband said, basically nothing happened in this episode. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, but that's not always a bad thing. Like if something is visually and musically and thematically and emotionally interesting enough, it kind of doesn't matter if not much happens plot wise. Yeah, I just want to take a minute to like really admire everything that had to go right in this episode for it to work. Um, Because I think it seems easy, but it's actually really hard to write surreal stuff without sounding like a bad angsty teen poet (laughs) Uh, and just like weird for the sake of being weird as opposed to like weird in a very specific and interesting way. Hats off to the writers, Aditi Brennan-Kapil and Jim Danger Gray, um, director Christopher Byrne, and also I think specifically Kristen Glover for his monologue performance that like really started off the episode in such a strong way. Um, and obviously he did it way better than I did uh, <laughs> at the beginning of the episode. But yeah, I just, um, I thought it was so great. Before we sign off for the season, um, we just want to thank everyone who has written a review for us so far. And we wanted to mention everyone by name. You guys are uh, so important for helping uh, new people find the podcast and for uh, helping us get uh, a bigger audience. Um, so thank you to Miamajil, Generosity, Mama for Justice, Kate Gilleran. Sarah Lawton, Far Flung Hope, Other Blue Girl, JP Soso, Mobax819, Mandy K, Kiwi Eagle Sarah, and J Elmo. Thank you all so much for taking the time to give us a review, and thanks to everyone else um, who's rated the show, even if you didn't have time um, to write out a full review. And so this is the end of our coverage of American Gods Season 2, but we will be back for Season 3. And meanwhile, if you miss having me and Alan in your ear holes, you should definitely check out our other podcast, uh, which is called Hallowed Ground Storycast, uh, where we discuss our favorite stories. And basically, Alan and I force each other to watch and or read different things. 
um, that mean a lot to us. And we also have a lot of really fun guest episodes where uh, we invite people to come on and share their favorite stories with both of us. Um, So the next episode is going to come out in June, and it's going to be about one of my favorite movies um, from when I was in high school, Bend It Like Beckham, uh, the like coming-of-age soccer romantic comedy, uh, my favorite genre. (laughs) Uh, And so... Um, with that, I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com. If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. And don't forget to tell your friends about us and to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Uh, If you do, we will mention you by name in our premiere episode for season three. Because all writers have a bias. Please use yours to write us a glowing review and help us get more listeners. Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license. Check, motherfucker. Um, well, if you want, I can babble a little bit about how I was sitting in on a... So we had a guest lecture in a class that I'm assistant teaching this week. Um, it's a, a Stanford historian who writes about how yellow fever influenced uh, 19th century New Orleans. And it is, like, so fascinating. Um when she when her book comes out like you and i need to read it for hg storycast okay <laughs> it's so like i don't know how much you knew about this but like so yellow fever has like a 50 percent death rate in adults it's Yeesh. less than that in children um because it seems like the immune response is part of what causes the high mortality and so actually like less of an immune response um that you get in children is good um so basically like there's this like in order to achieve so like new orleans was like the biggest cotton port in the antebellum south and it was like a place where you could go and make a lot of money for yourself and engage in business and commerce. But in order to do so, you first had to acquire immunity to yellow fever because nobody wanted to train or do business with somebody who might drop dead during the next epidemics. And there were usually like pretty bad epidemics every three to four years and minor epidemics like every summer. So, um, so, like, the term that they used for that was acclimation. And mm-hmm. um, so, like, you'll notice in, like, all of the slave ads and all of the, the like, job ads from New Orleans uh, in, like, the pre-Civil War era, they all say, like, wanted acclimated bookkeeper or, like, acclimated Ugh. man to train as bookkeeper or, like, 12 acclimated slaves. Um, 
And so it was, there were like, every year there were like a ton of Irish and German immigrants who would come and then just like half of them would die. <laughs> and then, Jesus. and then half of them would go on to like become these like really wealthy merchants. Um, but yeah, it was just like, and it made me really think about, um, your description of voodoo Mm -hmm. and like obviously you know it was mostly white people who were who were like dealing with this acclimation and like calculated death risk um because you know like the black people were either brought well they didn't have access to the privilege that acclimation brought white people first of all um and second of all for the most part they were um acclimated as children or brought over from Mm -hmm. Africa already acclimated. Um, But yeah, that, that like yellow fever was like part of this death landscape in the Caribbean um, that like probably contributed to um, the ideas in voodoo. Like it wasn't just the trauma of slavery, but there was like, specifically the trauma of yellow fever was really horrible. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Disease like plays a huge role in early American history. Mm-hmm. Like for sure. Like that's a huge part of why the indigenous people were like wiped out. Like even before white people were able to reach the West, their diseases had already gotten there and like, killed like over a third of the entire population wow um it's nuts how you know like european disease transmission was like a huge accidental weapon Mm -hmm. to like you know white colonialism yeah yeah before it was was deployed on purpose it was just interesting how she was saying that like yellow fever the way like it became conceived of in white society was basically like it was like kind of like Calvinist or or like wealth gospel uh, prosperity gospel like in a way where it was like you know like all of these white immigrants were coming in and basically like yellow fever was uh separating the the sheeps from the goats or whatever that it was like if you were if you were a good person and a worthy person and a person that god favored or like a particularly strong person you would just like expose yourself to the fever on purpose go through like a week of physical torment and then like through your personal will triumph over the disease (laughs) and then it was like yeah, so so like the fact that you had gotten yellow fever and survived meant that you were favored by God and it would make people more interested in doing business with you. Yeah, so like <laughs> right, yellow fever. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, we will uh, have to read that book. That's really interesting. Yeah, and yeah, she and the woman was like really really great. 